21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Greetings, everybody. Thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of my Run Your Life podcast series. I just wanted to give you a bit of backstory before going into the podcast with my guest today. To introduce my guest, his name is Jeff Woodcock. He's a friend of mine and the current head of elementary school at the Coast School in Saudi Arabia. That's the school that I presently work at. When I think of Jeff, I think of one of my favorite books that was written by Stephen Covey, entitled Ordinary Greatness. And what Covey strives to do in this book is to share stories of ordinary people who strive for excellence in their life and how they strive for excellence, and how they build upon their their skills and dispositions to become the best people that they can be. Today's show is really about personal and professional excellence and the idea that they are closely intertwined. I wanted to have Jeff on the show to share his insight and wisdom into what quality leadership means. And although Jeff would be the first one to admit that he's not the leader that he wants to be just yet, he is striving every day to develop his skills and deepen his leadership ability through the work that he does. Jeff believes in empowering others and unlocking the greatness in others. And through his work, this is what he strives to do each and every day. When I think of Jeff, I think of one of my favorite quotes, which is written by John Grossman. Silence is not the absence of something, but the presence of everything. You'll see in this podcast, in this episode, Jeff admits that he is an introvert. And in my own experience in education, I've seen multiple times the perception that the extroverted leader, the very charismatic leader that can get up there and hold the attention of a room full of people is the best type of leader that there is. But evidence shows that it's the quiet leaders, the introverted leaders, who can have the greatest impact because they take the time to think their way through every single decision. They take the time to truly listen to their colleagues, to their fellow leaders, uh, in an effort to better understand them. Jeff really embodies what it means to be a quiet leader. He doesn't say very much, but when he speaks, people listen. Um, again, getting into uh, today's episode, we're going we're gonna to dive into uh, Jeff's past in regards to physical activity and sport, the life lessons that Jeff has learned through physical activity and sport that transcend physical activity and sport itself and apply to the work that he currently does. So I think you're really going to like this episode. Um, Without further ado, we'll get on with it and uh, listen to my conversation with Jeff Woodcock. Thank you very much. We've finally done it, Jeff. We picked a time and we're recording on the last day of the school year. 
Thanks for being on the show. Uh, no problem. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be on the podcast. And I know that we've been trying to do this earlier in the year, but um, going into the summer, I thought it would be a great opportunity to um, just kind of share your story and what you've been doing. And I think you got a really great story, and I want people to hear more about it. So um, we I've already said something about you in the introduction. Uh, so people have already heard a little bit about you, but I think what we will begin with right away is um, just for you to give everyone a snapshot into your backstory. So where you're from, where you went to university, places you've worked, you know, anything you want to say about your family, we'll just begin there. So take it away, Jeff. Okay. Well, uh, I'm from Kingston, Ontario, Canada, and I went to university first actually Ottawa University, and I wanted to be a police officer, so I was focusing on criminology, and and then I did another degree at Queen's, <clears throat> and focusing on sociology there, and I guess the idea was re- that would give me some time to, um, you know, I was only 20 at the time, so to, to, you know, mature a little bit before joining the force, and also participate in you know, some police ride-alongs and, and learn a little bit more about being a police officer. And and by the time that degree had finished, I had realized that um, that policing wasn't for me. I'd spoken to police officers and uh, had some exposure to it and, um, and just realized that it wasn't for me. And I guess the biggest thing was just time away from your family and the, kind of the toll that the, the job has on you. And... Um, was there a particular moment, or was it just a slow understanding that you developed that it might not be the work that you wanted to do? It, well, yeah, I guess it was it was seeing people that you know, hearing the stories about being away from your children for days at a time, you know, working night shifts and all that kind of thing, and and the challenge that it is, and obviously it's a it's a challenging job for sure, and. Um, and I was also at the time I was working with young offenders and in an open custody facility, and so that you know that exposed me to um, a lot of new situations and challenging situations. And but it also gave me an opportunity to uh, be an educator for them. So I was running uh, different programs uh, for 16 and 17 year olds, and so that was my first kind of exposure into you know educating. Uh, young people and so that was that was what I really enjoyed and so it was from that experience that I, I decided that I wanted to go into education and and then yeah so went down that path and so my wife and I uh, it was interesting we got married in July and in do you want to say hello to your wife? <laughs> yes hello Melissa I'm sure the, you're the only one listening right now um, and uh, so we got married in July July 29th and then in August uh, we separated to go to teachers college and so I went to Nipissing and Melissa was at Queens and uh, I love my time in Nipissing it was a great program um, Thunder Bay uh, area North Bay North Bay yeah so yeah super cold uh, what stands out at that time was minus 35 degrees in the morning. and That's where your snot freezes. Yeah, we had, a, we had a brand new car, a Volkswagen Golf, and it wouldn't start. It was that cold, and we had to plug it in and uh, 
thank goodness for CAA. But yeah. Um, yeah, and so from that point, we we were still both in teachers college, and my sister had the year before gone to Malaysia to teach for a year as part of the Queen's uh, job fair, and so my wife and I were really excited about that, you know, hearing that experience from her. And also knowing that in Ontario there weren't jobs to be had for teachers, <laughs> that we would have to be substitute teachers um, for an extended period of time. And so in January of our year of teachers college, we went to the Queen's Fair, and we were tremendously lucky to end up in going to Bonn, uh, Bonn International School in 2000 Germany. 2000. That would have been 2000. And Eight, I'd say. Okay. So, or maybe no, two thousand seven. So, okay. so, and and Bonn International School is it was an established IB school. We knew nothing about IB, and I'm surprised we got hired after, after you know being asked about it, and we really couldn't say much about it. But I think what uh, Peter Murphy, who was the director who interviewed us saw that we both had real-world experience that would help us. And so I had worked, obviously, with young offenders, and and he had done the same. And Melissa had run her own catering project, and and he had some links with that too. So I think he saw, um, he saw a link there, and he took a chance on us, and we're forever grateful to have started at Bonn in such a great school. It is a very well-known school too among the best in Europe in terms of the PYP, right? Yeah. So Ottawa to Nipissing, um, you know, when I think about your journey, um, and I didn't know this about you until maybe two months after the, uh, we started working together. So uh, it's my first year at Coast. You know, Neil and I have spoken about Coast on our Four Times Mindfulness podcast and kind of shared our journey uh, being here in our first year. But it took a couple months to find out that we had a common link with young offenders mm. and that was uh and we have a very similar path in regards to you know i was a counselor at a young offender facility um this was a lockdown facility 12 to 18 year olds but then there was open custody as well um i came very close to joining the police force mm. in, in windsor um fought back and forth the first few years of international teaching there was a point where I wanted to go back to Windsor and try again for the police force um, but ultimately it was the path of education that was you know meant for me so I think that was a you know when I found that out about you and kind of your work with young offenders I immediately connected with what that work meant the, the challenge of it first mm -hmm. of all but what was your biggest takeaway with working with young offenders that you were able to apply in education? Well, I guess for a lot of them, it was just, you know, getting, getting an opportunity to be successful and feeling that they were supported by someone. And a lot of times they started life uh, with challenges in front of them. And so they they had obstacles to overcome right away. And so you could see that, you know, it would have been difficult for them to be successful in the best of circumstances. So, you know, just appreciating where those kids had come from and mm -hmm. how difficult it is. And I think it's with any, with any kid, you, it's not like, you know, they're trying to mess up. It's that, you know, things have 
come before them or, you know, mm-hmm. they haven't learned about making the best choice and, and, and so just kind of appreciating that always when you're, when you're working with them and, and, uh, you know, assuming positive intentions when mm-hmm. you can. And that idea that, um, managing kids is very different in a school setting as opposed to a young offender facility. Yeah. So your management skills were probably quite good when you started teaching. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I guess it's, but it is, it comes back to respect though. I think with, with those kids, especially you, you, you respect them. And, and, and I used to, you know, play basketball with them. I would go to the gym and work out with them. I would play pool and, they, so they respect that you put an effort in to sure. connect with them. And, and so, and I think it's the same with students. You, you know, if you show that you care and you take time to connect with your students, then they will respond in kind. I think they understand inherently when you go above and beyond, you know, they, I think they understand that you're doing more than, than is expected at times. I think they, they feel that and they understand that. So, talk a little bit about you know there's a lot of uh, listeners from the world of physical education um, but talk about your sport background and and what sport and physical activity meant to you along your journey of you know going from Ottawa and you know up to Nipissing but just talk a little bit about your journey with um, physical activity and sport yeah well I think you talked to my parents it it was my life for the you know for as long as I can remember, it was such a driving force in my life um, from such a young age. Um, you know, my stepdad was really interested in sports and not not at the extent of playing, but, you know, he, he loved watching sports. And and so right from an early age, I was I was a fan and and I would play everything. I, I was never, you know, particularly engaged in any sport when I was young. Uh, I was playing every sport and in high school I would play you know all four seasons and I was always busy and that was really what you know drove me every day in school you know when I think back I was not a great student um, but I loved going to school for sports and um, and then when I graduated from high school so what sports did you what were your favorite sports in high school um Probably basketball, just because I had a, a group of friends that we were so close, and we played every year for four years, and and you know, and we weren't the most successful team, but we had such a close relationship, and and it, you know, and and you know, to play with people that you you know, are close with and you connect with is is a great um, great thing. And soccer was what I had the most success with. But it wasn't. It was kind of something I played because I had success with it. Position. Uh, I was always a midfielder, and then one year we didn't have a goalie in high school, and so I started playing goalie. And the next year we ended up going to the Ontario Championships for for soccer, and by that point I was kind of hooked on it. And uh, and then when I went to Ottawa, there was no soccer team at the university, so then. When I went to Queens later on for my second degree, I had a chance to play varsity soccer, um, and that was you know an amazing experience. And I mean, that's a big leap too, you know, to go from 
not playing for a few years and then suddenly because queens you know they're good in sports as well right absolutely yeah so that's a big leap and you took a chance there and talk a little bit about that experience um well yeah i i had never played representative sports growing up where you travel you know i played high school stuff and so this was really a, a leap in that sense and you know we were well taken care of as part of the program and and we had dedicated coaches and trainers and um and to play with you know such a high caliber of of athletes uh, that was an amazing experience and i think two out of the three years that i was there we spent part of the year ranked number one in in the country and you know so we had great success and it didn't translate to the end of the year always but you know it was it was a uh, an amazing time to play such competitive soccer and um how did you find the balance between um study and sport <laughs> well i think you, you have to do well enough to stay yeah, on the team yeah absolutely right? well and i think yeah it, it it drives you in that sense but um i guess by that point i had started to mature a little bit as a student and i understood what it took and and in ottawa you know, I realized that you can't, you know, you can't just rely on, on, you know, just going to class that you had to put in the effort. And so by the time Queens had come around that I had started to develop better study habits and recognize the importance of staying on top of things because of soccer. And, and, uh, and yeah, like I wouldn't tell my mom this, but, you know, Soccer, even at that point, was a driving force for me going to school because I was, you know, it was such a passion of mine at the time to, to play on this team and be part of that program. And so it definitely motivated me. That was my experience playing football for University of Windsor for five years. And when, when I started, I, um, you know, I, I desperately wanted to stay on the team, you know, and academics were a big part of that. And I had not had a lot of success my first go at university straight out of high school. So I took um, time away from university. And uh, when I went back to, like, football was the reason why I went back to university. And then suddenly I had to maintain the grades to be on the team. So it was the first time that I actually devoted myself to, to study because I didn't want to sacrifice. It was about football. It wasn't about school at that point. But again, in maturing and learning proper study habits, I found each year on the, the football team, like I was actually starting to enjoy, I really started to develop, uh, I don't want to say a love of school, but um, just confidence in being a student and, and what it took to, what it took to, you know, be a good student and I was required to study. So that's probably something that you experienced as well. Yeah, well, and as you're talking, I'm kind of thinking about when I coached in in Bonn. I would I was coaching high school basketball, and in many ways, those I those diploma year kids were taking university level classes, and so at 16 and 17, they were learning the importance of maintaining that balance because they definitely wanted to play basketball, but they were also taking very challenging IB level classes and. And at such a young age to be learning that balance and and just appreciating, you know, the sacrifice they were making in terms of basketball and then hours of study. Um, but you know, for us, we were, you know, six or seven years older than those guys, exactly. and, and so just to. But they're uh, learning the value of that sooner. Yeah. You know, 
So speak more to what, you know, I know you, you used the word passion, that you were passionate about soccer and that it was really soccer that you were pursuing and then and then suddenly studying became more part of your, you know, you found balance with that. But speak more about what sport actually meant to you and, and what drove you. What was it about sport? Well, I, I think about when I... When I finished grade eight and I moved to, uh, my family moved house to a, a new neighborhood um, in the city that I was from. And, and so I started high school not knowing a single kid and, you know, in, in a community where all these kids had grown up, you know, going to school together. And, and I am definitely an introvert. So if it wasn't for sports, I don't know where I would have ended up in high school in terms of finding friends and connecting with people and feeling like I was part of something. And so I am very thankful for sports in that sense. And I, I told you that I developed these strong friendships with a group of, of guys that I played sports with throughout. And it was only because we connected through these teams that I developed those friendships. And Was it easy for you to to join the sport team or was it was it a risk did it feel like a risk or did it feel natural because sport was your thing I was well I guess I wasn't confident you know going to a big high school that at the school that I went to had a really strong reputation for sports Frontenac Secondary School in Kingston and I almost didn't try out for basketball my my first year and I remember somebody talking to me in the hallway and pretty much convincing me to do it and so it was even at that point, like that was the day before tryouts. And so it got to that point, if I hadn't tried out and, and, you know, things could have gone down another road. And, you know, obviously you see kids that don't have something that they can connect with. And sometimes they get in trouble uh, in that sense, because they, they don't have something kind of guiding them and keeping them focused. And so, um, yeah, I was very lucky in that sense to, to find that path and, and, you know, I only played basketball my first year, and that was the only sport, but I started to develop those friendships. And then the second year, I played, you know, volleyball and then basketball and then soccer and tennis. And I was, you know, I was involved with, um, you know, four different groups of people, really. But those one, that one group of guys that kind of we connected through all sports and, and played together. That's that idea of, and, and this is what we, we talk about, our network of physical educators on social media, talk about the core values of what physical education represents. So that's why I'm asking you about this and trying to distill what those, what those values are, because ultimately it's not about skill and drill. It's about the core values embedded within the program mm. and having clarity of what those kind of clarity of outcomes and what those values are and then your program is built around those values and I think that's such a huge part of it and that bonding experience that that, um, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert that bonding experience that physical activity and sport can bring to a person's life and I think that's what's so important and um, that's what a lot of the teachers listening to this podcast are striving to you know, kind of share that message with administrators and, and policy makers, especially back in the mm-hmm. States and Canada, is the, the real value that physical education brings beyond skill and drill. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so. Um, well, and I think physical education in some ways will bring out, uh, you know, different subjects bring out different students and you get to really see what they're all about and, and you can see more about their character and, and what drives them. And I think physical education can do that for so many kids because you see talents that you would never know about and bring out maybe more confidence because they're playing that sport mm-hmm. or they're engaged in that activity. And and so it is such a valuable way to get to know your kids and, and unearth different skills and talents that you would have no idea about. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, when you when you think about physical activity and sport and kind of how it's morphed and evolved in your life and you look at your current role. So for those people listening, I've already said in the introduction that Jeff is the head of uh, primary, head of elementary here at the Cow School in Saudi Arabia. Um, but how has uh, physical activity now, what role does it play in your life? Like describe the balance of, you know, kind of physical activity and sport and what it means to you now. Um, mm. You're much busier now. Yeah. But yeah, well, and I guess it's just, it, it reminds you of how important balance is because I, you know, it, it is a busy, it's a busy day to day experience. And, and so I'm just kind of constantly reminded of maintaining that balance and, and I always, I, you know, I always feel better when I can be active and, and I, you know, I've, you know, obviously it'll reduce stress and, you know, and, and you can connect with people. And, and, uh, so my priorities are, you know, usually I try to get to the gym, you know, as often as I can. And then I've started, you know, playing team sports again. And so I was involved in the basketball team and, Again, it's kind of that same experience of connecting with people and developing friendships with people in the community that you might not necessarily know mm-hmm. otherwise. And then I just finished a week-long what they call the Ramadan Ramadan Cup tournament, uh, and it was a soccer tournament that started late at night, and I was playing with guys that I uh, had never met before, and, and it was a great experience just to meet um, meet new guys working in the university and and playing a very high level of soccer and, you know, and experience that. And, and that kind of, you know, we, we'd only met at the beginning of the week, played every day uh, and, you know, till 11, 12 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, we had developed like this, you know, strong bond and friendship. And it's just kind of going back to what we're saying about sport and, and the ability to bring people together and, and develop new friendships. Yeah. That cohesiveness. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you feel within yourself when you haven't been physically active in a while? What are the signs that you need to do something within yourself? Well, yeah, I guess it's almost like a, a lethargic feeling, you know, in the sense that even if you take sleep out of the equation, um, even if you're getting a lot of sleep, you still, you know, there's nothing that replaces that feeling of going to the gym in the morning or doing something active in the morning for me. And then just having that kind of done and you're energized all day and it gets you, you know, you're productive through the day. And mm-hmm. it's also just, it's nice to know you've done your, your activity for the day and you can, you know, relax in that sense for the rest of the day. And then you're also just, you're energized. And, and so when I'm not doing that, I feel, you know, kind of lethargic and, 
and I'm sure there's kind of like a psychological impact on sure. you, you know, because you're regretting not working out or being active. And those endorphins, right? Yeah. The impact of the endorphins. Um, so, you know, if we dig a little more into your journey in education, um, I want you to think about when you first entered the profession. So in looking at your own journey in education, describe how you're different now than when you first entered the profession. And in knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself if you could go in a time machine back to, like you said, I think 2007 or mm-hmm. whatever, but if you could go back to that time and talk to the first-year teacher that you were, what advice would you give yourself? Well, yeah, I, I guess there's so much that I had no idea about back then. And, you know, I in some ways I'm lucky that I, there was so much I didn't know and that I survived through that time. But um, I guess the biggest thing for me was I was working with uh, really a master teacher, Marina Geisen. Yes, our good friend Marina Geisen. And and we had a great relationship in the to- in the sense that we were talking and sharing, but we weren't really collaborating. And and I think for me as a first year teacher, I was definitely intimidated by her, but. You know, I could have learned so much more if I kind of opened myself up to possibilities and, and her perspective and, and you know, really collaborating. And, you know, it was kind of like when I look back on it, we were really, it was cooperating what we were doing. Mm-hmm. We were sharing ideas, but we weren't building things together. And it was because I wasn't opening myself off to that. And I was, you know, I was probably intimidated. I was insecure in the sense that I was a first-year teacher and if I could go back, I would tell myself to really connect with her and really work on developing things together and collaborate in that sense and, mm-hmm. you know, and co-plan and co-teach and, and connect in that way. And I could have learned so much more from her. And I, I like, you know, just kind of by osmosis, I had learned from her, but I could have learned so much more if I had really connected with her on a day-to-day kind of level at a, you know, at a deeper level. And so taking the risk to find a mentor or to connect with a mentor and be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, yeah, I was so lucky in the sense to, to work with her and like I realized it at the time, but I didn't take advantage of it. And, and so she was the mentor. I didn't have to go look for anyone. She was right next door and she was, we were the two grade three teachers and, and, um, I should have taken more opportunity to collaborate with her and connect with her and, and you know, and that I I think about that often in the sense of a lost opportunity. Um, and we have a great relationship, and you know, we still connect. But um, I could have definitely taken advantage mm-hmm. of it more. And I think it's that idea. Like, do you think it was? Um, is this something that most young teachers go through? Is it? I think back to when I first started teaching, and it, and it was definitely that masking thing we talk about you know you you feel this pressure that you have to know everything right away and it's kind of this fear that people will figure you out that you really don't know what you're doing and and I think there's that masking idea that you want to you don't want to let people know that you don't know right but that's part of the journey is not knowing and teachers college back when we went to teachers college didn't prepare us way that it should have 
you know, because once you actually start working, it's a whole different ballgame. So I think there's that element of like, at least in my case, when I think back, I didn't want to go seek help because I didn't want people to know that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And it's such a stressful thing. The inner stress that, that young teachers go through, at least I'm speaking for myself, I'm not trying to generalize, but the inner stress that, that you go through is like, you don't want people to know, you cover up, you mask, and and it's it's just such an energy sucker. You know, so that advice to to seek out a mentor and and go and 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 seek somebody out that, that can truly help you and, and watch them. That's that's very valuable advice. And and Marina is we worked with Marina, Neil and I. Neil is taking notes here on on the podcast, but Neil and I worked with Marina for five years, and she was extraordinary. You know, and um, she moved on to leadership as well, and and she was meant to be a leader, and you know, really take her vision forward and she's doing that in, in Nanjing now so I, I'm thinking about Tony Birkin a consultant that we, we work with out of uh, New Zealand he, uh, he does his best to provoke us and then as you're talking I'm just thinking about he talks about this second job that a lot of teachers have in relation to kind of hiding your insecurities and your inefficiencies and 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 so people spend so much of their time trying to hide what they can't do and rather than obviously being open to that and acknowledging those challenges or those failures or those um uncertainties uncertainties yeah and and you know and obviously i'm sure we'll get to it but that's kind of the nature of what we're trying to get to at our school is it's okay to have those insecurities and those those things that you need to develop in and and we're trying to create that culture where people can step forward and away from that second mm-hmm. job of trying to hide and, and, and really be honest and, and then access all the great teachers that we have at our school to learn and, mm-hmm. and, and meet those challenges. And I think that's that whole idea of what we're trying to accomplish. So my role is a pedagogical coordinator and it's working with teachers and we have a number of pedagogical coordinators in the school. And when we received our, our training, so we did the, I think it was a 60-hour course broken up into two separate weeks, um, but it's that idea of unlocking uh, greatness within the teacher, and the idea is that they already have the internal resources to be successful. Uh, and it's just it's just allowing them, or not allowing them, but probing and asking questions and, and getting them to tap into their uh, internal resources. And every teacher comes with internal resources. And I think it's such an amazing process. Uh, but it can be intimidating for teachers. And I'm not talking about teachers at our school, but just in general. Uh, it's not about weaknesses. So the fact that you're working together with somebody, so you seeking out Marina early in your teaching career, it's not about you being a weak teacher. It's it's about actually understanding that that's just part of the process, that continual uh, kind of evolution and growth, um, and being okay with that. Mm-hmm. So it's not about being weak. Right. And it's not implying that teachers are weak if they need a mentor. It's yeah. actually all a part of the process. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something very important. Well, I every teacher I interview, I I talk about the fact that we're looking for learners, not knowers. And 
connecting to that point that we we want people that are willing to say that they need to learn. It's not about weaknesses. You're right. It's about are they willing to learn and 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 versus coming in, you know, thinking that they are a master teacher and that they've learned everything mm-hmm. and there's nowhere else to go and mm-hmm. um, and so you know thinking about our system that we've developed it sounds great but you actually have to you have to engage in it you have to open up to be successful and have these discussions yeah you know and that's all part of the the journey so um in moving on to i just want to kind of tap into that idea of leadership and and you are a young leader you know, and a lot of people, <laughs> I don't feel young, <laughs> but it's that idea that, you know, you, you'll get teachers that work, you know, 15, 20 years and then go into leadership, but your role, you, and you said this the other day, and it was a beautiful message you gave the staff uh, at the end of the year. And it was just this recognition uh, of being here and having the opportunity suddenly to be in a, not suddenly, but to work your way into a leadership position and that a lot of leaders have to start off in small schools and work their way up, but you have been in this position here, and it's that idea of, of you know, I'm, I'm interested to know more about your pursuit of leadership. So what advice do you have for teachers who may be considering a move into leadership? And kind of it's, it's a twofold kind of question, but... What are the biggest obstacles that they might have to overcome within themselves when contemplating a leadership move? Mm-hmm. So I, there's a great book called Nudge, and, and it's that idea of that that something was nudging you mm-hmm. along your journey. You felt this desire to be a leader, um, but what would be your advice to somebody considering a leadership move? And what are the biggest obstacles that they might have to overcome Uh, within themselves when contemplating a leadership move Um, yeah well there's a lot of parts to that question I guess Uh, I guess I would start with I probably moved into leadership in in the first place I guess really because I was encouraged by people and supported by people and, and I never forget that that people like Peter Murphy director in Bond and then Stephen Middlebrook, who was the director in Bonn, and then Maddie Hewitt, the director in Kaust, and now Lainey DeRoder, uh, who's the director um, at Kaust as well. They've all supported me, and they saw something in me that, you know, to support me, and they saw a potential in me. Did you see that in yourself? Um, I don't know if I did. Or did you feel something like I, within yourself? I felt, I don't know, like I, I, I felt like I could do it, but I feel like such an important part of being a leader is having people believe in you. And so I guess it was affirming to know that these people did believe in me. And, and so that was, um, that boost my confidence in that sense and, and driving towards it. We just took a little pause there because uh, your daughter Macy was making a little noise downstairs. <laughs> As she is wont to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to return back to that idea of leadership, and and I just wonder, you know, that idea of quiet leadership because you've already said it in this podcast that you are an introvert, and um, there's a great book called Quiet, written by Susan Cain. Uh, it's I 
that's the the title, but then there's something after that that has something to do with uh, quiet in a in a world that can't stop talking mm. or whatever. But a lot of the evidence shows that some of the best leaders are introverts um, because they take time to listen and reflect, and they that's a, a value that they have in their own life to to really be listeners and and to take time to to think and that's often not done in in leadership so i want to return back to like sport because team sport requires leadership and there's a lot of quiet leaders on teams but do you feel that you were when looking back when you were playing uh, goalkeeper on your university team do you feel that you were one of those quiet leaders on the team yeah i think i was a quiet leader you know, within, within the lines, like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't speak up, um, and, you know, in the locker room and, and, you know, kind of try to motivate guys in that sense. But I, as a goalie, I think you're kind of like a, a coach out there cause you can see everything you're, you're directing people. You're also seeing when, you know, guys need to have a pickup, you know, they, they need to be motivated. They need to be encouraged that kind of thing and so you know even though I'm I'm quiet by nature I think and when I'm a goalie I'm always talking and I'm always you know helping guys know you know where to go with the ball or you know what do they need to be thinking about and and that kind of thing and um the big picture yeah right yeah well you've got that view right you've got that whole field view that uh what I guess it's not dissimilar from that you know the principal kind of thing where you're looking at the whole the whole picture um but again i always tell you know the teachers you're not going to hear me talk a lot because that's just not my style you know i like to engage with them and and be part of the process and yeah i you know talk when there's a message that needs to be delivered but but spend more time constructing that with them but it's it's I think the most important thing is being okay with that. Yeah. Well, and I I you know, I spent time with charismatic leaders in you know, in Peter Murphy and and then Kyle Brewerton who was the principal before me, two very charismatic leaders and and I knew I wasn't that and I can't be that and I, and I think I even said at one point to our staff this year that you know, different styles and I'm not going to be that guy but I you know I am who I am and and I think just trying to get people to acknowledge that and and appreciate a different style and I think of I want to return back to our friend Marina Geisen and I'll never forget Marina's first year in leadership at NIS and Marina is is very much an introvert as well Um, and she connects deeply on a one-to-one level and when she took on the role in the first day in front of the whole staff she got up on stage and she said that she was not Laurie McClellan who is the director of the school who's very charismatic and she right away wanted everybody to know that this is something that she struggles with and she's not comfortable with and she had a paper in her hand and and she read her speech, and, and she was a little bit apologetic, but at the same time, she was acknowledging within herself that this is not a strength. Um, and what 
the one thing that she said at that time was, what I really want to say is that I am here to liberate greatness in others. And that's what Marina is all about. And she has established herself as a great leader. And she she works with teachers day in and day out. But she's uh, not that person, that, that charismatic person that gets up on the stage and, and motivates teachers to be their best. But more behind the scenes, that, that quiet motivator. And I think that's a very important thing to acknowledge who you are and what you bring to the table. Um, so as a going back to the, the question, as a, as a leader, what do you have any more advice for people considering a leadership move? Um, well, I, so I guess the, the, there's two pieces of advice. And I guess the one really is just to ask, ask yourself, is it leadership that you're really after? Um, you know, because I think teaching is such a tough profession because it's, you know, in order to earn more money, the only way to do that is to, to pursue leadership. And there's, there's not enough roles for people to, you know, be recognized at a higher level without going into an administrative role. And, and, and we're lucky in the sense that we have these roles, pedagogical coordinators at our school where, People are not administrators in the in the more formal sense. They are helping teachers develop their practice, and they are working with teachers every day to help them to liberate the greatness in them. and And so we're lucky in that sense. But there's not a lot of roles out there where where you can have people doing that at schools. And but so I guess just going back to it, is it. Is it something more than teaching that you're after, or is it truly to to be an administrator um, and and really identifying what your goal is? And then the second thing, um, and it really came up from a personal experience, was I was applying for a position, and I was I was aware of the other person who was um, in contention for the position. And they were an outstanding administrator, an experienced administrator, someone I respected tremendously. And I thought there was no way that I could possibly have a chance in, the, in, in terms of winning that position. And I remember speaking to someone, Brady Klein, who I used to work with in Bonn, and he had said, you, you know, you can't be everything for every position, you have to be who you are. You have to present what is different about you that will set you apart. And you're not going to win every position, but you have to find the right fit for you. And so he really talked to me about developing a niche for myself as a leader and what was my style, what was I going to bring that was different than anyone else. And and so I went into that, you know, looking at that position with a specific style in mind, with a specific focus that set me apart from this outstanding leader. And, and um, you know, I was successful in that. And obviously that's not going to work all the time, but to, ha- to, you, to develop a niche as a leader is very important, I think, because you can't be everything. You have to look at what is, what is unique about yourself, what can you bring that's unique, 
and uh, honor that and honor that and try to find a fit with the school and understand that what you bring might not be what the school needs and and be okay with that but trying to find that fit is an important part but also developing that niche and understanding that and you know there are director there are administrators that have you know they're very strategic and you know that strategic vision is is their niche technology could be a niche you know developing curriculum or assessment you know there are all sorts of different ways you could go but finding something that's different for you that sets you apart is really I think important for an aspiring leader Um, because beginning it's so tough to get your foot in the door in terms of being a leader and so you do need to think what is different about you that would appeal to to someone who's interviewing lots of experienced candidates so going back to that idea of the nudge Mm. And you and I have talked about the, you know, about that this year, and um, it's that, you know, that that internal force within yourself. So just describe that. I don't want to narrow it down to a particular moment, but describe that that nudge within yourself. What did that nudge feel like, and what was that internal voice saying to you? when you first started to consider leadership? Hmm. Um, well, I guess, yeah, I don't know if there was a, it's tough to find that one moment, but I, I guess I, there were a few things that happened in Bonn where I had opportunities to become an athletic director at, at schools and 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 again that was people seeing potential in me where I hadn't expressed that that was a, a, you know something that I wanted to go t- towards but people expressed that they had confidence in me and, and that gave me the nudge and and I guess that confidence to pursue things but then I guess I kind of translated that confidence to other positions and coming here there were lots of opportunities to pursue leadership and 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 um, one of the things that I did early on was I took courses through the principals training center and the teachers training center and they're incredible workshops and you're very active in that yeah so that's just say a little bit just a little bit of backstory about that well, and I kind of just fell into it one year and where I, I took one workshop over the summer and the, the program obviously run by Bambi Betts and, and it was the first time I had engaged in a professional development opportunity. Where, where can I, people find it online listening? The PTC.org. Okay. And Principals so, Training Center. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was the first time I took some, I took a development session that I walked away with practical things that I was going to apply in my classroom the next day. And I, I engaged in um, leadership uh, workshops, and, and that gave me a whole toolbox of, of things to bring into being a leader. And so I started as a team leader, and, and just being able to bring all these tools and people could see that I was, you know, I was organized and I had a plan, and a, a, a purpose for what I was doing. That was my first experience. And it was, it all kind of began with those 
those workshops and 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 I talked to Melissa about it, my wife, and told her how amazing that experience was and she did the courses as well and she found them you know extremely useful and I'm I'm now teaching for the the teachers training center and I think it's a, a very worthwhile organization and it's it's very unique training for international teachers and and it's a great networking uh, tool as well because you're coming together each summer to meet people from all over the world and learn about different schools and meet people and and it's a great experience and another thing that I'm thankful for for experiencing it and it's and it's extra time and I didn't expect to ask you this question but it's that extra time during your personal holiday and there you know in, in speaking to teachers over the years there are some teachers who um, have distinct identities in regards to personal and professional who they are as a person is not who they are as a professional and I'm in the camp that who you are as a person is who you are as a professional that they're very much intertwined um, because it's kind of uh, you know and being an educator and, and striving to be a great educator it's it's a personal and professional pursuit so how do you I don't want you to pick a stance but just describe that experience within yourself that personal and professional and the personal pursuit of excellence the professional pursuit of excellence and how they overlap just speak to that for a few minutes yeah well teachers teachers and well educators I think you never kind of clock out really because you are always thinking about your kids or what's happening tomorrow or what happened today and so a I think it's impossible to actually disengage from your professional life in during your personal life because you're always thinking about things and probably talking to your spouse about the challenges that you've had or you know friends talking to friends and and so it's a job that follows you home for sure, and and you know, and there's long hours that go on beyond that. Um, but I also know amazing teachers who can, you know, they're they clock they they leave at four o'clock every day, and it's because they're so efficient with their time, and they use that time so well, and they can go and they can balance their home and and work life, um, and make that work. Um, but I think for the summer, you know, it is a, it's a, to take those courses over the summer it is a full, it's a full on experience and long hours and long, long days. But, um, when you're doing something worthwhile, I think that makes the difference, right? If you were doing something and you didn't feel like you were getting anything out of it, you were just there to tick a box and get a certificate and add to your CV, then that's one thing. But to be part of an experience where you're feeling like, okay, this is what I'm going to do when I get back into my classroom. These are some things that I'm going to work on. These are uh, tools that I can put in play. Then that's a whole different experience, and it makes it a lot more worthwhile. And you have that, I want to return back to our sport metaphor here, but that idea of um, cohesiveness, you know? And I think one of the things about sport is that it bonds you with other people. And experiences like that, also bond you with other people and my physical education you know the physical education network that I I am a, a member of um, 
has been amazing because you know we we are, are teachers that came together on Twitter and suddenly we're at conferences at in different places around the world and we're meeting for the first time mm-hmm. and because we've had this connection on Twitter and we've shared things and we've Skyped we come together and it's like we've known each other for right. years mm-hmm. and it's a really amazing experience so it returns back to that that bonding experience mm-hmm. And and those those core values and, uh, and that cohesiveness and working together for for a common cause and and sharing your learning but learning from the experience of others as well and um, I want to kind of transition into our school here and it's an amazing thing because um, you know a lot of schools operate on this. Uh, Kind of on the basis of this traditional model of appraisal, which is the administrator coming in, watching teachers teach, giving feedback, and then moving on to the next school year. Um, but I want you to speak specifically about our vision here at KAUST and um, the role of the professional inquiry in regards to growth and development. So just give a little snapshot into how teachers and administrators are setting their professional inquiries and and growth. So talk about professional inquiries, what they mean, and the process of determining professional inquiries. Um, Well, I think I'll I'll step one step backwards and I guess just kind of give people the history of of where we came from because we definitely were in a traditional setting where you had that that administrator coming in for a formal observation once or twice a year and it was very much about measuring competency it was not about as we said earlier liberating the greatness in others and 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 it's such a it, it wasn't improving performance it wasn't helping teachers get better and it wasn't you know, it wasn't an experience that I don't think administrators relished in the sense of going in there and setting, you know, setting scores based on performance, based on a few or maybe one observation. It just didn't work. And and so then we did move to this model that was about empowering teachers to develop themselves and wrapping them in a support system. And then we talked about the pedagogical coordinators playing a role in that because they are the coaches, the mentors leading curriculum for those teachers. And so there's that support, but then the professional inquiries are a second piece of it and, and really getting teachers to identify an area that they want to develop in. And it comes from them assessing themselves, looking at themselves, it, you know, it could come from data that they've gathered. We have asked our teachers to collect student voice data, so they're asking their kids what they think about their, you know, getting feedback from their students. And so it could come from that. The students could identify an area that a teacher needs to develop in. People are getting, teachers are getting feedback from other teachers about their, you know, their practices or how they collaborate, uh, those types of things. They're looking at even achievement data. And so they're looking at all these sources of data and identifying an area that they want to develop in. And what we say is these, it's, it's their inquiries, they're not goals. If you know the answer, 
to your inquiry, then it's it's actually a goal. You know what you're going to do. The inquiry is about finding the answer. It's about you know spending a lot of your time actually exploring possibilities, talking to other colleagues, um, you know, observing colleagues, reading, um, connecting with others, um, sharing your challenges with others, and and exploring all of that, and then. A smaller part of it is actually putting it into practice and evaluating is it successful or not. And so you're you're doing this inquiry and it could, I tell people all, all the time, I tell our teachers, you could engage in inquiry and it could be a complete failure because it's not a goal that you can check off. It's you're trying to solve a puzzle. You're trying to improve something and you don't know what you're going to do if it's necessarily going to be an improvement. So people need to be okay with that failure. And, you know, they're not penalized for an inquiry that doesn't succeed because at least they've explored, they've tried. And and the other thing we say is it's about making changes to your practice. It's not about doing things that you already do or that you used to do and you forgot about. It's about making changes. What are you doing differently as a result of your inquiry that you weren't doing yesterday or last year? Um... And so that going back to that teacher as a learner practice and, and developing in that way. And again, like teachers are, are kind of, um, when it comes to data, data is not so difficult actually, you know, especially when you have somebody to support you in, in gathering the data, but really looking at the data to inform your inquiry and where you're going. So just can you give some examples of, of data? So for the teachers listening that are not required to create their own professional inquiry, um, what advice can you give them in regards to the importance of data? How can that teacher go out and gather their own data about their own practice with no support? So a teacher that might be listening to this. Um. Well, I guess the data, first of all, I guess it comes in because, like I said, inquiries don't have to be successful, but you want to know whether they were successful, and so you need evidence to know that. And so um, it doesn't have to be statistical, quantitative data. It could be you know, qualitative observations or um, you know, things that you've recorded in that sense. Um, but a few things that our teachers do that anyone could do is record teaching lessons, record your lessons. You know, for example, if you're looking at talk time, if you're looking at questioning, um, you know, those types of things that you can easily record lessons, observe, and, you know, and later on just by yourself record, okay, what types of questions were you asking? Response Uh, time. Yeah, response time, the wait time, all that kind of thing. Um, and how are you, you know, who are you asking? How are you asking the questions? All that kind of thing. You can collect that data just by recording video. And Jim Knight, uh, who I've, you know, I've, I've met a few times and I, he's, he's been a great influence on me in terms of instructional coaching. He talks about the power of video to record lessons. And, and, and so we have teachers engaging in that. And then it's also, depending on your students, it's also easy to, get them to give you feedback and data and you know if you let them know i think it's it's 
powerful to tell your students, this is something that I'm working on and, you know, I want to collect some data on it. And, and then you can ask them, you can survey your kids and, and ask some questions. And, you know, we would typically do like a Likert scale type model where you're asking questions and you're getting some data and, and measuring to see, to see change over time. Um, but I also think it's so powerful for you to share your inquiry with your students so they can see that you're a learner too and that you want to get better and that you're valuing their feedback. That idea of modeling being a learner. Absolutely. And yeah. we've, we've heard from students how much they appreciate that. And we have grade one students, six-year-olds and seven-year-olds, engaging and giving um, student voice feedback. And it's, you know... You would think with children that young, you wouldn't necessarily get reliable data or, you know, valid data, but it's been a wonderful thing and, and they have wonderful things to say and they uh, make you aware of things that you weren't aware of or they can confirm things that you were thinking. Um, it's been a great experience, I think, for teachers to get that data and the praise for that process has pretty much been universal in that sense. To, yeah people feel really like it's a valuable process yeah and that's what's i think unique about what we're doing here at the at the school and that's why i wanted kind of just to get that bit of advice for the teachers listening who want to know more about professional inquiries and how they can go about kind of determining what their professional inquiry is but the first step is is that idea of having conversations with the students and not just listening to what they have to say, but present back what they said to the mm -hmm. students so that the students know they've listened. Mm -hmm. it, there's a big difference between saying, I've listened to you, and this is what you said, and this is what I'm doing as a result, right. and then going back a few months later to check to see if the students have seen an improvement in that area. You know, and... I think it's, uh, it is possible. So um, teachers who are not required to do it, it's a great process to go through. Um, and uh, that's why I wanted to ask you the question. So we're going to transition over to the speed round. Okay. Okay, you ready for this one? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. This is kind of the hot seat, right? All right. So what I'm going to do in this last uh, part of the podcast is I'm going to ask you a question and you answer it as succinctly as you can giving no additional information and then at the end you're going to think about the areas the questions that I asked you which one resonated the most and you're going to give us one last piece of advice related to that area okay ding ding yep ready okay so we're going to start with the best book you have ever read from outside the world of education Okay, well, I, I, you had told me that you were going to ask me a question like this, and I had prepared some recent books that I had read. Um, but one of the, the books that I, I really love reading, and I've read it a few times, is by Bill Walsh, The Score Takes Care of Itself. I think that's the exact title. So Bill Walsh. San Francisco 49ers yeah, he, coach. He used to be the coach, and then I think he was the general manager of the San yeah. Francisco 49ers, and he took over the team. At its absolute lowest. Two and 14. Yeah. yeah. And he, and I'm a huge San Francisco 49ers fan, so it connected with me in the first place for that sense. But also it was a book about leadership. 
Um, and, and it's all really, he, he really focuses on, you can't worry about the final result. It's all the details that you take care of in, you know, in the beginning and throughout that, um, that will get you the result that you want. And, and so you're, you know, it's, you're looking upstream to create that change. You're not looking downstream to make, to make the change or hope the change happens. And so he, developed all these systems and procedures and things that had never been done before to look to address all those details and develop such a sophisticated approach to coaching and developing football players that you know it got to the point where they had great success and and he was also able to just take he didn't have to take the most skilled players to be successful because joe he, montana undersized quarterback yeah, and jerry Slow. rice even was not a fast yeah. fast receiver so he he was able to have success by having a strong system and addressing those details and being very strategic, I think, in his plan. Yeah. And Here, here's a, can I give you a Jerry Rice uh, fact? Sure. <laughs> Jerry Rice, one of the all-time greatest receivers in the history of the world, took ballet lessons so that he could tiptoe on the sidelines. <laughs> nice. Right? So he took ballet lessons to be able to pull his feet, both feet in, as he, uh, you know, came into possession of the ball, the right? <laughs> and and he did ballet training for those tiptoe catches on the sidelines, which are, you know, required building up the muscles in his feet to be able to do that. <laughs> I'd like to see some video of Jerry Rice doing ballet. <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> okay, even though I said that we had to do a succinct answer, we went, we went on there. Yeah, that was not a speed yeah, round that, answer. That's okay. So we're going we're gonna to return back to the speed round concept here, and we're moving into your biggest fear. <sighs> biggest fear? I don't, yeah, I don't know if I have a huge fear. Um, that's because you bench 300. <laughs> I guess I I think I always as a leader I always want to remember where teachers are coming from and I never want to lose that disconnect with teaching is the hardest job and and so I guess it's not necessarily a fear but it's a concern that you, you know you, you you never want to lose sight of that and so just remembering that with everything you do and I guess always trying to get feedback from people when I make a decision because it's going to impact teachers the most. And so, you know, I guess just that fear of losing sight of what's most valuable and, and, and keeping that in mind. So the fear of losing sight of what it's like to be in the trenches. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, the greatest challenge you have had to overcome Um, yeah, it's a tough one. I guess, um, I haven't, you know, there are people that have had way harder challenges, I guess, from a, a personal standpoint, our family has gone through a lot and, and, um, and so we've had those challenges in, in that sense, but I guess we've just, we've always been supported by our friends and, and I guess, it doesn't really answer your question, but, uh, you know, those personal challenges and, and also just being, having those personal challenges when you're overseas and away from your family, those are really hard. And I think that's a, a hard part of this job when you're an international educator is being away from family. And when tragedy strikes, not having that kind of support system, but mm -hmm. also 
knowing that you have a second family here with you yeah that you have adopted definitely um do you feel being an introvert was ever one of the challenges that you felt you had to overcome yeah well yeah it continues to be i guess but i think it you know it kind of comes with practice like i don't think i'm ever going to be a great speaker but i'm continually put into that position where i need to be and so hopefully i'm reflecting on each conversation and each you know speech that i give or each kind of address to the staff and and i learn from each one and i'm better prepared for the next one but yeah that's a it's a yeah. challenge for sure i asked uh, i was at a school one time and i asked one of the the leaders had to get up and he was an introvert and he had to get up and he had to give this speech and he paused a lot and there was some reflection time and he gave an amazing talk mm-hmm. and afterwards um, I spoke with him and I asked him I said so and I hadn't really worked with him a lot so I didn't really know him but I felt that he was a natural speaker and then he admitted to me later on that that he's not and I said, well, what allowed you to be able to do that? And he said, I realized that when I get up and give a talk that it's okay to give myself time Mm. and to just take deep breaths and to really think about what I'm saying and that pauses always seem longer than they actually are. Hmm. Yeah, And I was like, it was about a five-minute talk, and I was like, that was incredible. Hmm. And that's his approach. So he's very comfortable with the pauses and understanding that the pauses are not eternity. They might seem like they're forever, but they're just a few breaths collecting thoughts, and, and that's the approach he uses to this day. Speed round. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I'm okay. failing the speed round. So that's okay. We both are. Um, your biggest frustration in education? I guess it's just about aligning purpose, you know, and you you've you're mixed with all sorts of different philosophies and in different backgrounds and trying to get to one place is that that's it's a challenge and it can be a frustration because in order to be successful every single person needs to be on the same page and and to develop consistency and continuity and really you know speak the vision that you want and so when you have all these different backgrounds, that's a challenge. And, and, and so just trying to get people, you, you're constantly working to get everyone together. And, and, and it's all about connecting to purpose and why are we all here. And, and so that can be, it can be a frustration. It's a challenge as well. And, and I think, what you're saying connecting to purpose is that idea of I think it's purpose beyond even though schools are aligned by a common purpose but it's that common purpose of of being in education and what it means and that's even tougher to to bring Mm -hmm. in but there is an alignment between that purpose and the institutional purpose Mm -hmm. as well that you have different factors working in there um, okay, so we're going to finish off with this one, and this is this is a good one, Jeffrey. 
Morris, <laughs> final question. <laughs> so what we're going to do here is we're going we're gonna to put you in the time machine, and uh, I think you're like mid-30s now or something. Sure, we'll we? go with mid-30s. Okay. So we're going we're gonna to throw you, th- you know, 30 years into the future when you retire, and you come out of the time machine, and, and you have an author there that's going to write a book about your career and your journey that is going to be a bestseller. What is the title of that book going to be? Um, I think it would be Opportunity. Do you need an explanation there? Or um, is that yeah, we, we, if we, if we want to stay with tradition, speed round. <laughs> but if we keep with our tradition of not staying with Steve speed round, then, then please go ahead. Uh, well, yeah, so I guess it's just I, I've been so fortunate to have opportunities given to me by people. And, and, and there are people that, like you kind of said earlier, that can be in education for such a long time and not have any of the opportunities that I've had and so I've been lucky and I've been I've been fortunate to have people that uh, believed in me and gave me opportunities and I never I never will forget those people and those opportunities and appreciate how lucky I am and it's that idea of um, there's a great TED talk uh, by a, a Benedictine monk David Steindl Rast he gave a great TED talk and he speaks directly about that idea that um, opportunity only comes once. And I gave, you know, my this talk that I gave back in October was Eminem's uh, Eight Mile, that mm-hmm. opportunity only comes once. But really opportunity is present to us every single day. If we, if we you know, when the doors are opened, we walk through. And it is recognizing that with every day comes new opportunity and recognizing the people that gave you opportunities is huge now and I know that we we reference Marina Geisen here but she has opened the doors of learning for Neil and I mm. and I know you as well so we're going to see her this summer Marina if you're listening we look <laughs> forward Marina. to seeing you <laughs> Um, okay, so now the end of the speed round is thinking about the questions that I asked and really zeroing in on a final piece of advice related to that area. So to recap, we did the best book that you've ever read outside the world of education, your biggest fear, the greatest challenge you have had to overcome, your biggest frustration in education, and the old time machine question about uh, an author writing a book about you, what would the title be? So leave us with uh, one last piece of uh, advice and insight, please. Okay, well, uh, I guess I would go with the last one. And speaking about opportunities, I think one of the things that I, as I've looked forward into my work now as a principal is looking at how can I provide opportunities to others now. So I've been given this opportunity. How can I empower others to do that? And so that's something that I've identified for myself and for the school is to develop people. And so I think 
for the administrators who might be listening and, and for anyone who has that potential to give opportunities to others and see potential in others. I think that's such an important part of developing a school and developing greatness in others is seeing the potential and then providing them with those opportunities. And, you know, and I, it doesn't even have to be at your school where they see that opportunity come to fruition and understanding that you might be setting someone up for greatness at some other place, but, you know, believing in people and seeing that, you know, you want to give them that opportunity to develop and have opportunities. And, and I'm only in the position that I'm in because people have given me those opportunities. And, and so now I'm trying to, you know, pay that forward. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a great last piece of advice. Uh, Neela Steele, do you want to you don't want to say anything? Okay, Neela Steele's been taking notes here. So, um, Jeff, thank you very much. Thank you. I it's, appreciate it's been it. Great. Um, Tilla, you will see in the show notes how you can connect with Jeff, and if you want to learn more about professional inquiries or anything, the the information will be in the show notes. So, everybody, thank you very much for your time and energy. I hope you have a great summer vacation. This podcast is coming out uh, at the beginning of summer vacation for uh, some of us. Some of you are already on summer vacation, but I hope you found some value in this podcast. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.